Hello and welcome to the Adnard Podcast, the podcast for the Adelaide.net user group. I'm your host, David Gardner. This is a recording from our May 2022 meeting, .NET Snapshot Testing with Verify, with Simon Crop. And now, over to the presentation. Yep, so I'm in, I'm in Canberra, I'm working for, currently working for the Department of uh, Prime Minister and Cabinet, so the big enterprise. And what we're going to be presenting on today is snapshot testing via Verify. So if anyone has any questions at any point in time, I'm happy to take sidetracks and, you know, dig down into any specific questions people have. Um, you can either chuck something in the chat and David can triage those into um, a, a pause and ask me questions there, or you can raise your hand in the Teams feature and we can take a break and focus on you and you can ask your question in person. So make it as interactive as you want it to be, or you can just sit back and listen. Um, in terms of the news, there was one other thing that was pretty cool that I thought deserves attention. I'll just um, share my whole screen. Thumbs up, Dave, for that looking okay? Yep. Okay, so the other thing in Visual Studio 2022 preview is the first release of uh, raw string literals. So if you ever ever had JSON or XML with quotes and brackets, uh, raw string littles are great for actually getting those into your code and still making them readable. And it works by this kind of magic convention of whatever starts the string also ends the string. So you can have as many quotes at the start as, and many quotes at the end, so you can have double quotes or single quotes in, in line and make that readable inside the string. Um, the same works for interpolated strings. So you can have magic escape brackets. So this one's starting with two and ending with two. Yeah, so that's worth playing with. If you're using Resharp or Rider, they don't currently have support to this. It's probably the next wave of uh, EAP that they'll have support for this. And I'm not sure about VS Code, but that's that one. So I'm going to jump straight in and show you some a test. Now, the assumed knowledge for this is you basically know what unit testing is and you know what assertion is. It's not not very difficult com concepts. So your traditional cert looks something like this. We have this fake class that is just returning some information. So this could be calling in a production app. It could be a web service. It could be a database call. This is just for demonstration purposes. So in here, we're finding a single person and then we're asserting all of the results of that. Now, this is often quite fragile. I'm sure people have had fun with this kind of stuff before where you change one thing or your test fail or you add a new add a new property and it doesn't actually get asserted unless you go for an update all the tests. So I'm just going to quickly convert this to a snapshot test. Okay, that's it. So now when we run this, a few things are going to happen. So firstly, we get a pop-up of a, a diff tool. So you can see that this is the serialized version of that representation. Down here, we also have a, a tray tool that has shown us that this is a system-wide tray tool that sits down here and monitors all failed tests from all solutions. And also over here, the test has failed. I'll just split this side by side. So you can see on, on disk, there's actually two files that now exist here. So you can see these two two files exist here. So 
one is the received file that we've got here. The other one is the verified file, which is here, obviously empty. So this is the first time scenario where you've run this initially. Assuming that's the correct result, I'm going to accept that as the valid snapshot that I want. So there's a few ways I can do that. I can accept in Reshaper or Rider down here. I can accept it down here. There's also keyboard shortcuts for all of these things. So for now, I'm just going to do my accept all hotkey and do control alt A. So control alt all. So now on disk, we have a single file. That is our snapshot for that record. So I've purposely added some things that are a little bit broken in this snapshot. You can see here that that's a GUID that will change between results. And this is a calculated field where if I go and have a look at person, right? So it's a, it's a variable that's going to change every single time we run. So if we go and rerun this test, I've hard coded the GUID for now, so that's going to be stable. But you can see that the age has changed. So this is one of those things where if you're doing assertions, you would actually calculate the value and make sure it's greater than or less than or within a range or the exact value. But when you're actually doing snapshot testing, this is one of those things that can be a little bit fragile. So the easiest way to do that is to quickly modify the serialization settings. And I'll get that right. Just copy that one over. Okay. So this is saying that we want to, when we serialize this, we're going to ignore the member age on person. So now we run this again, and you can see that the age has been removed. So I'll accept that for now. The other thing is that GUID's often a bit fragile. So we can, uh, remember where it is, scrub inline GUIDs. Okay, so what happens when you serialize? The first time it comes across a GUID, uh, or a date time or a date time offset, it stores that in a cache, a test level cache. So the next time it finds that variable again, it's going to repla replace it with the same token. So this means when you are serializing larger models with multiple different IDs, those things are much easier to correlate and they're also scrubbed in a way that are consistent between runs. So the first GUID is always going to be the first GUID and it will be reused in subsequent serializations. So I'll just show you the, so this is the result of what those, those tests would look like. So this up here is global settings for those fat scrubbing and the ignore of the age. Also, since you still want to assert that the age is correct, I've got an assert in here. So this is an important note because verif snapshot testing is not an absolute replacement for assertion. You can use both of them together. In fact, there's many edge cases that snapshot testing isn't great at. Most commonly, greater than, or equal, greater than or less than comparisons to ensure that date times are within a certain range or values within a certain range. Because those things are floating values, you need to scrub them from the snapshot, but then still use traditional asserts to assert those things. So I'll just show you the flow of how that worked. So this is the first time we ran it. We ran the test. The test failed, the diff popped up. We accepted that, it moved the received to the verified file and closed the diff. The second time we ran it, again, it failed the test. 
it compared the verified and received. It showed the, the diff and we accepted it and it closed the diff. So if I just um, quickly run through that again. So here's an example snapshot. I'll just modify it so that the test will break. I'll run it again. And this is the scenario you get. You get this UI pop-up that shows the differences between those two files. So we have a before and after. Any questions on that so far? I'm assuming no. Okay. So what, what's the benefit of using this um, as compares to actually write your um, uh, expected result and um, just grab it and compare it yourself? So the start is it's less code. So if I just get these side by side. So this is your assert. Okay. This is your this is your snapshot test over here. So clearly there's less less code, but also the initial assertion creates that first snapshot for you. So when you're approaching a code base, you you have that functionality that you expect to work. The first time you run it, it will ask you to confirm that that snapshot, that snapshot is correct, and then you can refine it further down. But it means that you don't need to write this code. You don't need to reason about it. Yeah, what what I think is that what what I did before is previous similar to what you do, but we write our own expected JSON or XML output, and then we just read the file and compile the dif compare the difference between yep, the things. Yeah, that's the same concept as as how yeah, this works. But I th I guess this is more convenient because you don't need to read the file from your um output. No, and it also plugs into um different tools as well. Cool. So in terms of what this does, it's important to note that this is just serialization, right? We are serializing a object, and in this case, we're writing it to JSON. But serialization in a general sense is taking anything in memory, any instance of anything, and writing that to disk. If that thing on disk is something that we can compare, then we can use that for snapshot testing. So if I quickly jump down here and show you a, so this is a, a WPF app. Is that a request just to, to zoom in a bit, finding it a bit? Uh, yep, hold on a second. So this is a WPF window here. I can put that side by side. Yep. So if we can serialize a representation of this to disk, then we can use that for snapshot testing. So if we come over here and so here's our here's our test. We're just newing up a new instance of a window. And if I just click the verified, I'll show you the experience of when you snapshot test against a Windows form control. So here, this time we got two windows pop up. We got over here is the that's the current representation of the XAML state. So this is an in-memory representation of that form when it was running. We also have rendered that to a to a snapshot test, sorry, to a image. So you can see that this is something that's very difficult to do with traditional asserts because asserting an image like this, it's you can look at the size, maybe poke into some of the the pixels, but it's very difficult to write that. So with a snapshot test, it splits that that uh, form into two different snapshot files. So if I accept that and then show you what would happen if we changed something in that, so if it's just 
leader control and rerun this test. Oh, that's a shortcut for running all. Anyway, so now it's notified us that two things have changed. So in the running X, in the running XAML, it showed us that we're missing a button. And it's also showed us that this is the before. This is, sorry, this is the before. This is the received. And it's highlighted the difference between those two files. Now, this works for anything you can serialize. So if you're producing PDFs, Word documents, uh, Excel spreadsheets, all of those things can be serialized into one or more files, and you can compare those things to each other. The one I've found particularly useful at work is uh, snapshot testing PDFs. So you do two things. You capture the text representation of the PDF into one snapshot file, and you ca capture the all the pages as images into another snapshot file. And that means you can be fairly certain it's actually going to work without needing to do, you know, start up the app and debug into it and have a look at it and eyeball it yourself. It also means it's a re repeatable run. So you can run these tests multiple times and be confident that your app is actually working the way it's meant to. Any questions on that one? No? Okay. Actually, one quick question. Yep. Have you had any luck with... Um binary files of the like, so things like actual PNGs that can't be serialized to text, but say a image compression that generates a thumbnail from an image, could that be done with Verify? Does it have to be able to be brought back to text-based? No, so any, any input can be passed into Verify and it will result in one or more files. The, it doesn't necessarily need to be resulting in text, it can be. So if you were snapshot testing against, um, say, PNGs that you're producing, there's some extensions for Image Sharp, and the output of that you'll get will be Image Sharp, the Image Sharp extension will read in that file. It will generate the metadata for it, so the resolution, the size, um, any compression, all that kind of metadata, and will also take a copy of that image and snapshot test that to a, um, a file as well. So you'll have two two things about you'll have the metadata and the the image on disk in a snapshot file. Okay, so I'm just going to show uh, another one with this is to do with uh, browser automation. So if I just start up this app, so here we have a very basic Blazor app. The fact that it's Blazor is kind of irrelevant. It's just what I picked at the time. It could be any website. So over here, we have some tests. Wait a bit. So I've got a, a, a fixture over here, which is going to actually spin up our, our Blazor app in its own process. That's just to get it into a running state so I can actually talk to, to that website through HTTP. And then I'm going to run two tests over here. So one is going to query the actual page, and the other one will query the content. And Okay, so for each of those tests, we got two files. One is the actual image, and the other one is the current HTML. The second image, so this one's focusing on a specific control within that web page. So if you just want to snapshot test how various controls look and ignore the navigation and whatever else, you can just focus in on, on those specific components. And again, that's for HTML of that, of that specific control. So this can be very helpful when you designing any web page because you can slice and dice up what you want to snapshot test 
and store those in different components. Under the covers, this test is using Playwright, uh, which is my preferred, but it also has support for Selenium and there's a third one, I forget. So it supports for three main browser automation frameworks. If, is anyone doing snapshot testing with Blazor at the moment? Yeah, we've got a good value out of this. We're doing a Blazor server side at um, PMNC and we're combining BUnit with snapshot testing to capture those results and make sure they look okay. Yeah, Simon, we're building out quite a big Blazor app at the moment, Blazor server app, so we'll hopefully be getting into doing some of that shortly. Okay. Well, this is the this is a mildly complex uh, BUnit test. So here we have that's the actual counter object of that of that Blazor app, and you can render that, perform any actions that you actually want to perform on that. So BUnit has this approach of uh, you spin up a component and then you can perform operations on it. So you can click buttons or you can do a scroll. And then after that, you can match the state of that. So that's, that's what a B unit test looks like. The equivalent for that for verify is very similar, but we just, instead of doing the matches markup, you can pass that component directly to verify. And the result is again, two files. This is a metadata file and also the rendered HTML. Would you, uh, could that be, um, would you come up, come across, I mean, having a, a different um, result in different testing environments, just different machine, what I say? Um, yes, yep, you, you definitely can. The, the most common place I've seen that is for, uh, for rendering of UIs where the UI is specific to resolution or operating system, et cetera, et cetera. So a common one you'll see is uh, if you're doing WPF or WinForms validation, the the rendering of those things can be slightly different per per machine. So one of the ways that you can handle that is there's a, about four or five different image comparers that are lossy image comparers. So this one's using image magic, and this is a, a threshold that you pass into basically the tolerance to compare between those two images. So it means that minor pixel differences between, between renderings of different on different machines don't break your build. Right? You can dial that tolerance up and down. The good thing about this is this is only for the image. As long as you have, um, in most scenarios, you can capture the image as well as some other state. So for um, when we were looking at a web page earlier, we could have the, the image of the rendered web page, but we could also have the HTML. So having a higher tolerance on the image is generally fine because if it fails in a way that the content has actually changed, the HTML's changed, that will still fail. Yep. Cool. Thanks. Okay, so the next one I'm going to show you is parameterized tests. So one of the common scenarios we have is all test frameworks support. Um, in X units called a theory, uh, but it's basically a parameterized test where you can pass in multiple values and the result of each of those values is different based on those inputs. So when you're doing snapshot testing, the default for a snapshot testing is the file is named 
by convention the same as the test. That doesn't work for snapshot testing because, sorry, that doesn't work for parameterized testing because you need to have different results based on the different combination of parameters. So uh, Verify automatically recognizes parameterized tests. This is a bit of a hacky because XUnit doesn't, extensions to XUnit can't access the value of the parameters that are passed in. This isn't required in NUnit or MS tests. But when you run this one, you'll get one snap, one snapshot per test that comes per parameter combination that comes in. So you can see here that the it actually has put the name of the so this is pram test underscore value equals value one dot receives. So it's actually encoded those parameter values into the name of a file so that they're still unique against each combination of parameters being passed in. So this is a pretty simple example, but you could be doing any logic here, passing those combination of values to some other method that um, gets some value back. And you can have, again, you could still have multiple uh, snapshots per test combination. So if you are testing, parameterize testing a website, for each combination of those parameters, you would have HTML and an image for that combination. So it understands how to group those multiple things together. So you can see here, if I add a new value in here, okay, so I already had approved for value one and value two. This is value four. So we have the contents and we have the name matching that. So I'll, I'll pause a bit to explain explain the diff tool integration. So at the moment, you'll notice mine's popping up beyond compare. That's my preference for diff tool. It has a good combination of uh, image comparisons, support, text support, some pretty good smarts on um, comparing text. It's also blindingly fast and it uses very little memory. So you can pop up if you want to, uh, 20, 30 instances of it on a very basic machine, it's not going to grind your machine to a, to a halt. But there are a number of other diff tools supported. So that's for the full list at the moment. So they're ordered pretty much on preference. So when you launch, when you run a test that does a snapshot, Verify will walk through this list of tools, try and find the best tool for the file format you have. So if one of these tools, for example, some of them only support text, they don't support images, but sometimes the combination will be, I found a diff tool that supports text and I found a different diff tool that supports images and it'll pop up both of those. So it can have different combinations of diff tools popped up. And you can also control your preferences based on the order of diff tool that you want. So you can install any number of these and in configuration you can set the order that you want those to execute. And then when it gets a given file, so some diff tools support comparing PDFs. So when a test fails, you've got a received and a verified PDF, it will look through all your installed diff tools and try and find one that can compare PDFs. You can also write your own diff tools and plug them in. So you notice out of the box, it also supports Writer, Visual Studio Code, and Visual Studio. So if you don't have any of those other custom ones installed, I'm pretty sure it will find something on your machine to compare those files. 
Okay, I'm going to jump through and show a, an example of a recording. What's a good one to show? Let's do HTTP recording. Okay, so this is a helpful concept when you're you want to assert some behavior multiple layers deep inside a program. So you might be calling some code that calls multiple different web services, and you want to assert that the, the correct request and response have been sent through based on that stack of executable code. But you might not necessarily want to reverse engineer that stack in such a way that you can plug into those different levels, capture those inputs and outputs, and assert the results. So recording is more of a general concept, and it's based on the technology that it targets. So the HTTP recording is using diagnostic listeners, there's also some entity framework recording that's used, that uses the entity framework APIs to record underlying calls, but it depends on the technology under the covers as to how that's implemented. So if I just run this one. So you can see here, this is your method being tested. This could be multiple layers deep inside multiple different calls. It could be doing any number of calls to any different URLs. But notice inside our test, we don't actually need to get access to the results of those calls. If I just run this. Okay, so what's popped up is zoom in there. No. This is for this is the HTML that's come back or the, the response that has come back from the two calls. So we have one call here with a request and a response. A second call here with a request and a response. It's captured all of the incoming headers for both the request and response and the results. So in this case, it knows how to, it's detected in the response that it's a JSON payload and it's correctly reverse engineered the, the JSON and put that in here. So notice there's no double escaping of the JSON here. And same for this one down here. So the same can be done for calls to SQL Server. So here we have a method that you're testing. And again, this could be doing any number of SQL statements. And when you actually run it, the result you get is all the different requests that are sent, all the different commands that have been sent to SQL. In this case, we've only got one. But it's also, in both those cases, it's also combined the value of the result with that recorded payload. So you can see here, this is our target of what we've passed in and it's appended all the recorded results to that target. So if we were passing in something a bit more complex here, it's gonna scrub this, but this will just give us a bit more complexity. So you can see here that the target that we passed in, we've got the SQL result, which is 42. We've also got a date time that's been scrubbed. So this means that you can combine any kind of serialization of any arbitrarily complex model with the recording feature. So if I go back and have a look at the HTTP response, uh, sorry, HTTP recording, you can see here that's the serialized target that we have because inside here it was saying the result of this is the length of the two payloads. So when it was recorded, that was our target. And then we have the serialized requests and responses from the recording. So this is another helpful 
there's another way that this is helpful. Often I've found that when I'm trying to debug something, I'll turn on all the recording features, sometimes only temporarily. So I'll turn on any framework recording, I'll turn on SQL recording, I'll turn on HTTP recording, and then I'll actually run my test. And you get this wall of information, but it means you don't need to refactor any of that code base to actually capture all of that information in a way that's readable. Then you can debug into it. You can have a look on oh, maybe the headers were incorrect of the HTTP calls. Maybe it was talking to the wrong SQL server. Try and work out what's wrong with that thing. And then you can turn the recording off and rerun the test and it will collapse all that recording back in back away and you don't need it in the resulting snapshot file. That, um, the SQL recording uh, reminds me of a friend of mine, Ben Lan, who has spoken in the group before, wrote uh, some basically some SQL parsing code so that he could write um, tests that would validate that the performance or the SQL that was being generated by an ORM hadn't changed. So, yeah, it's sort of, I, I wonder if he could have thrown away that code now and potentially used this kind of approach instead. Okay, well, let me quickly show you. Uh, this is Entity Framework. I'm sure most people on the core have used Entity Framework. This is building up a, a DB context. We're doing a query against companies with some arbitrary link statement. So this uh, can be you know, any link statement you want. It, it won't actually execute against the server, so you don't need a test DB or a target. But when we run this, I'm actually passing in an instance of a iQueryable here, here. It actually gives us the SQL that's been generated. Zoom in on that a bit better. So here you can see that the equals of the value the not equals of, of, I mean, it's a pretty silly query, but the not equals of a good, and you can translate that to an actual SQL statement. So I've found this useful for trying to debug why a query is slow. Um, often when you're doing entity framework link statements, it's pretty easy to forget that you're doing a um, returning a full col a full row instead of just a specific column, or that you're doing nested queries. So this really helps you visualize what's actually happening with that query. And again, this can be used in combination with recording, so you don't need to have this at the top level. This code could be nested inside some other code that does a query, and you can run a unit test over a bunch of code and get a visualization of what all those things are doing under the covers. So it is quite amazing when you have a, when you run this on a, on a real code base, someone has a test that's doing something in Entity Framework, and you say, so do you have any idea how many queries or what the queries are doing against SQL? And you know, you have a guess, you might have some idea. You turn this on, you get this wall of SQL, and you go, oh, that's not good. Like, until you get that visualization, you don't just don't know. Entity Framework is so smart under the covers that it's pretty difficult to reason about what a given link statement will translate to in SQL. Simon, with um, to configure that, is there anything required other than just adding in the the using verified test or entity framework? Because I know in EF Core to get it to output the generated SQL to your console or whatever as you're running, I think you've got to change some settings in the configuration of the DB context or something from memory. Last time I did it. Uh, there's, there's two models for this one. So Entity Framework has support for diagnostic listeners, and you don't need to do anything to get that working. It's a, it's, 
or sorry, you need to do one thing. This is a static initialization to basically say we want to plug into a vanity framework pipeline. Right, so you call that once at uh, app startup or a module initializer, and ever after it will work. Okay. Cool. Um, there, if you are doing things with multiple DB, con multiple different DB contexts, and you want to differentiate between which calls are going to which one, or if you're if you're doing some complex multi-threading, um, this is not. Doing it at the top level is not great, and you you want to at that point you need to plug into the individual instances of DB context and record against them specifically. Yeah, okay, yeah, because we we use being being that we're using Blazor, we're using um, DB context factories and generating context. So we've got a lot of sort of mocked um, contexts which override live context and all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff. So I, I'd imagine we'd just be able to. Yeah, well, in our instance, we'd just create specific tests just to test specific link queries um, rather than trying to integrate it within, you know, within other tests of other functionality. So I found that you, you try and do both. So this is this is a pretty standard approach with snapshot testing, especially when you have most people won't have done this from won't have done snapshot testing from the start. So they'll be plugging it into an existing system. So. Generally, you just turn on snapshot testing, you turn on the various features. So if you're doing any framework stuff, just turn on recording for a test and then run it. It will show you the differences. And then you make a call on, is that information valuable to us? Is that information consistent? Do we need to apply scrubbers? And sometimes you wire it back, you know, wind it all the way back and say, well, no, an assertion is just good enough for this. We don't need to use snapshot testing for those scenarios. But usually you'll find some value out of using snapshot testing for that. So in terms of just testing specific queries or using recording against your existing tests, you're probably going to find some value out of both. Okay. Yeah, because I know, I know we've got, you know, obviously very, very simple queries like this one here, you know, it's what sort of one table and that sort of thing. We've also got really complex ones that have, you know, multiple out of group joins and all kinds of weird and wonderful things um, yeah. joining across 15 different tables. And yeah, it's, it's, um, they're few and far between. Give me, I'll give you that. But, um, you know, where they are absolutely necessary, it's good to actually be able to, to see what the generated SQL is and see if it's, that it's not a complete shit show. So yeah. So the, the, the benefit of this approach is this is a fake DB context. Like this is just, I've passed in a fake connection just to placate SQL Server. So this one never actually executes that SQL. So it's it's requested that any framework under the covers, please render what you would execute if you executed this queryable. So the benefits of that are it's blindingly fast and you don't need a running SQL Server instance to actually run the test. The disadvantages uh, that you need to have be able to get access to this iQueryable, right? And if this, often these queryables might be embedded way down in your stack in multiple different locations. So sometimes it's not convenient to refactor and surface out for instances of those queryables. So it, it, it depends, really. If you, if you do have fast path 
queries that you want to make sure they are correct, and this is the critical path for your app, it's probably worth refactoring them out so you can get an instance and snapshot test that specific instance. Um, but for lots of other small queries, it's probably just better to use recording against a running SQL Server instance. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll cool. look into it. Okay. Um, what's next? Got a question, actually. Yep, go for it. Can you do any of this database um, snapshot testing, particularly with the SQL Recorder, if you're not using Entity Framework, if you're just using raw SQL or things like Dapper? Or is it uh, only for Entity Framework? Yeah, so so this one is Entity Framework specific. Um, there's a different package for Entity Framework versus Entity Framework Core that support the same APIs. The one I showed you earlier, which is raw SQL recording, that's just working on a SQL connection. Okay. So it doesn't need any framework at all. And you can combine those because obviously if you're using SQL under the covers of Entity Framework, you can combine those features. But yeah, you will see here that this is all SQL connection stuff. Um, it's even called Verify SQL Server. Um, and so you just need to have any running SQL Server and you can record and drop a snapshot against database calls. Yeah. So it, it, it depends on a couple of things there. Sometimes you'll need a running, a running SQL connection if you need to execute it, but certain things you don't need, like with that queryable earlier. So you could you know, snapshot test the parameters inside a command to make sure that looks correct, right? So I'll show you another one here because you asked about SQL. I'll just so this this is creating a SQL database. Doesn't really matter what it does, but if you're using um, Verify and you pass in a connection, a SQL connection into Verify, the default behavior of that is to give you a schema back. So this thing has taken this connection, poked into the database, and serialized the schema of that database to a snapshot file. So this is quite useful when, again, um, Entity Framework or any ORM, whether you're using some kind of script to create things or you have migrations or any kind of stuff where you want to change the schema of a database. This is very useful because at the individual level, those scripts can be reasoned about, but when you amalgamate them together and execute them when you want to do a migration, having a visualization of what actually the SQL scheme is going to look like is very helpful. Absolutely. Like I, so we use Dapper and sometimes, and general MS build publishing, but sometimes it'll leave tables in there if they're removed from the projects. And so we get some of these remnants sometimes in other some environments. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of edge cases in Entity Framework as well, where if you map things incorrectly, it'll call columns, you know, customer underscore one or customer ID underscore one as, as the actual mapping. And yep. it all still works because Entity Framework has mapped those things for you and, you know, obfuscated that for you. But you don't know that you've stuffed up your mapping and that the resultant SQL database has this, you know, mismatch between namings. And if you actually leak that into production, um, reverse engineering, reversing that can be a bit of a pain. Yep. The other, this is a, probably a good point to also highlight. These kinds of things are helpful over time as well. So especially snapshots of schemas. So SQL schemas, you know, web service schemas, 
any of that kind of stuff where you have this kind of uh, definition of what something should look like, it's really helpful over time because you then check that into source control and you now have a history of how your database or your schema or your web service has changed over time. So it means you can say, oh, well, this thing, we know this worked, you know, two months ago, but now it doesn't work. You can do a diff between those two snapshots of those schemas. That's something that's very difficult to do if you haven't snapshot tested those schemas and put them into source control. Like trying to work out what changed between one month and another month by reverse engineering entity framework migrations is a nightmare. Ask me how I know. <laughs> that's, that's really cool. I think um, it's something I'd, I've worked on systems that have used migration scripts and having a separate script for each change, but I've also worked on systems where they've just had one, uh, like a database project where you've basically got the, the canonical schema and the, there was aspects to those two approaches I liked, but it seemed like you only have one or the other. It seems like this gives you the potential to to have on the best of both worlds. You can still have your migration scripts, but you're actually seeing the, the end, the net result of all those and capturing that. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's also, also helpful if you've ever had to go through a, a cab, a change approval board. Ugh. And one of those things they often ask for, if you have like a, a database guy, like there's a database team who want to know what the change is going to do, you can actually say, okay, this is the schema before the change, this is the schema after the change, so that they can, you know, very quickly identify what's going to be different there. They can very quickly look at different views and say, oh, no, that's problematic, all this. It's it's much more difficult if you don't have that schema because then you need to say, oh, in this, if you want to have a look at what it looks like now, we've migrated to the integration environment and you can have a look at the database there and see what it looks like. Where this is a very easy thing that you can say, here's a before and after in text and show them what's changed inside tooling. Just had a question from... Andy, just asking, um, we've been sort of seeing uh, Rider being demonstrated tonight with Verify, but um, with the experience of Visual Studio, is that is that much different or is it pretty similar? So it's almost exactly the same. Um, the only difference is uh, down here where each of these tests has failed in the runner, there's an accept and a receives. So this is a JetBrains uh, feature effectively, Rider and Vrishapa both understand um, verify under the covers and add these features here. So if it passes, accept, received, and compare won't show up. So if you're using Vrishapa in Visual Studio, that feature will light up. Oh, sorry, it's a plugin. That feature can light up, and you can use the plugin. If you're using uh, the raw uh, Visual Studio test runner. Instead of use instead of a Resharpa test runner, then the diff engine tray handles it for you. So both this and this are performing the same functions. So this one's just right-clicked and isolated it down to a specific failed test. This one over here has been tracking all of our failing tests and what I've been approving and declining. So in terms of if you're on on Windows, on Rider, then you want the plugin as well as Differential Tray. If you're on Visual Studio with Resharpa, you want the plugin and the Differential Tray. If you're on Visual Studio without Resharpa, a Differential Tray on its own will work. If you're on the Mac, 
Um, I highly recommend using Rider. It's currently the probably the best .NET IDE ever there. So again, this will work. The extension will work on your on the Mac, but the Windows tray won't because I haven't ported that to Mac yet. Uh, there is also a third option that supports all of those scenarios, and this is an approach that used to be used in, or still, still is used in approval tests, and that is when snapshots fail, it copies a command to a, a accept that change into your clipboard. Now, the reason we moved away from that approach is it effectively overwrites what else is in your clipboard. So it's kind of a, it works, and you kind of have this kind of manual process of if you want to accept a given change, you paste that command into a command window. But it was a bit clunky, and it was, wasn't very granular to be able to accept individual things or bulk or doing keyboard shortcuts. So that's still an opt-in approach that you can use the clipboard approach, but I wouldn't recommend it. So did I cover all the scenarios there? Oh, I guess v, I guess VS Code, you can use the different tray as well. Will the diff engine tray work if you're just running like .NET test raw from console? Yes. Cool. Yep. The diff engine tray, it's, um, it's IDE agnostic. So any idea you want, um, it uses, I think the implementation under the covers is named pipes. So when you run a test suite, once that startup of that test suite, it checks if there's a connection available there, a port on it. And if it is, it will route all of those test failures through to um, differential tray. Can people see the differential tray down here? It's a, it's a bit small. It's just a little red icon down the bottom right-hand corner. Yeah. Can so if I, if I just discard all my changes and run this again. Okay, so you'll notice down here it's currently red because I had a failed test before, but I'm running all my tests now. No, I've got some explicit ones. Let me clear that. Okay, so if I quickly do a red-green test with the initial one I had, where is it here? Okay, so I'll make it fail just by, you know, breaking the snapshot. I'll rerun this. Okay, so, yep, it's failed. So down here we have it red over here, and also in different engine tray we have it red. Now, if I just accept that change and rerun it, so even before I rerun it, Different Engine Tray detected that the file had been approved because it knows all the files that it's tracking. So when I accepted the change inside the, the test runner, it moved that receive file over to the verified file. Different Engine Tray no noticed that that file had ceased to exist. It's gone back to being in a, a non-red state and stopped tracking that file. It can be a bit hard to grasp that until you use it. So, again, this is probably a bit small, but inside the different tray, you can control a bunch of features. Um, the important ones that you probably want are to configure your accept hotkeys. So one will accept all the failed, so all the pending approvals, and the other one will accept all the open ones. Now, the reason is an open, accept all and accept open, is that when you run tests, there's a limit to how many diff tools will pop up. So I've got mine configured pretty high. It's at 20. That's because I'm using uh, Beyond Compare, which is 
very efficient. If you're using something that's a bit more heavy on memory, you might want to tone it back down to, say, five comparisons. And then you kind of end up running your tests, looking at a bunch of different failed tests of ones that have popped up and kind of approving them in batches, wherever multiple is this number here. That doesn't happen too often where you have to approve in batches and you can always override with a, there's always an accept all down here where if you have a hundred failing tests, but you know they're all correct, you can batch accept all of those in one command. Oh, what's next? Um, I think I'll just quickly get up the extension list. So while I've been doing this, I've shown a, a whole lot of extensions. Um, you can see that's the list of extensions that I'm using for this sample and those two as well. And I'm using the verified at X unit. So depending on your test framework, how you extract out, how those APIs extract out the parameters, the test name, the, um, all that kind of context is specific to that given test framework. So there's a verify.x unit, there's one for n unit, there's one for ms test, and there's one for X expecto, which is a F-sharp testing library. So you pick the specific one that you want to use, and it will uh, light up all those features. If I actually come and have a look at the different extensions, so the current list of extensions might be a bit hard to see. It scrolls a bit, but you get the idea. Extensions are really easy to write because uh, Verify is designed to be extremely pluggable. So there's probably five or six main extension points where you can do recording, comparers, scrubbing, um, serialization. So some of these are only, you know, four or five lines of code inside that extension. But it means you can pick and choose what, uh, what extensions you want to plug in, how you want it serialized, how you want things compared, and to try and get that best combination for you so that the friction of having snapshots is decreased. So is there any, you know, problems that you see with snapshot testing that you want to ask? Um, I, I guess the main one which I've tried to highlight is between scrubbers and comparers and how you manipulate those snapshots, it reduces a lot of the friction to snaps, snapshot testing and also the way that you can bulk approve changes to snapshot files. Is there any other things that people foresee as having problems with? There's one thing I actually want to ask about, and that is running these uh, as unit testing type things in pipelines where you have only a limited capability to write, say, if you're in a Azure-hosted service for running in pipeline, you might not be able to write a received file. Have you tested this with pipelines much? Yep. So I've, I've actively used AppVaya, GitHub Actions, and Azure DevOps. So... The one thing you said about you don't have access to write um, files, that's generally not correct because, you know, you are building something. You, you have access to the disk. The challenge is getting those things from the disk into an asset that you can actually see them. So depending on your build server, you want to plug in a little bit of YAML into each of these scenarios. And what this does is if a, if a test fails, that received file exists on disks, but it's hard to get to without placing this in your YAML file. And these promote these things to assets. Right? So you can see in this case, 
on failure for um, app data, just take all the received files, recurse over it, and then publish those as artifacts to app data. Okay, and that lets you actually see more details of the failure. Yeah, well, it gives you the it gives you the exact failure. So then you can actually take a copy of that file, download it, and have a look. You can do a local compare. So you take that received file, you place it on on disk next to your verified file, and you do a comparison of them using whatever diff tool you want. Um, also, in terms of a diff tool popping up, uh, Engine has so this is the thing that actually pops up the diff tool. Uh, it has knowledge of these different CI systems. So when you actually run a test on a build server, it, w it won't try and find a different a diff tool to pop up those comparisons because you know there's no one there to look at it. Um, and out of the box, it supports those. And there's also a, a magic environment variable that you can set. Um, or you can just tell me what the – all of these are implemented as environment variables. So it's generally, you know, is CI equals true or something like that. So if anyone wants to add extra CI engines here, that's trivial to do, and we can support those out of the box. Currently, I don't know anyone who is using the explicit environment variable, but I added it there so it didn't block that scenario. That's pretty cool. I should also say that this diff engine is, if you're using shouldly or approval tests, under the covers, both, all three of those use diff engine for launching comparisons. So shouldly has some very basic snapshot testing in it. It's not as, it's more about passing some text in and it will snapshot test that text for you. It doesn't have a serialization capability or the scrubbing or anything like that else like that, but it does have some basic support there, and it uses Diff Engine under the covers to launch that comparison. So I notice with your examples with XUnit, you're, you're adding the extra attribute to the, the class. Um, we just had Andy in the chat was uh, playing around with MS Test, so I think he discovered that you don't need to do that for MS Test. But, uh, yes. What's, what's the function of that attribute? So this is how you plug into... So there's a before-after test attribute. This is an XUnit feature, and it allows you to run an arbitrary method before and after the, the test is run. So this allows us to capture the current method that's been run. There is another way of doing this inside XUnit, but it requires you to effectively replace the, the test discovery, and that's too intrusive because... It, and you can only replace the test discovery with one thing. So if someone wants to use my snapshot testing library that replaces test discovery and also another library that replaces test discovery, those two things don't mesh together. So this is a, I'm not even sure it's variable documented, but this is a feature of XUnit to allow us to capture a bit more context as to the running test. And you're correct, this is this exists inside Verify X unit, and it's not required by N unit or for MS test or for Expecto. Is anyone doing so, F sharp testing and using Expecto? Nope. Okay. I know, um, I remember when with approval tests, it, it had particular requirements around uh, having to not inline things and sometimes had to, to compile in debug mode because it did seem yeah, so, so approved working. You're correct there. Approval tests uses stack trace walking to work out what the current test is. And to be able to consistently walk a stack trace, uh, 
you need to have enough information in the metadata of that stack trace to walk up and not inline things or, you know, uh, push async things down into different classes at compile time. So for approval tests, you needed to have uh, debugging information turned on and also optimization turned off for your unit tests. So that had a couple side effects. It was kind of a, a gotcha for the first time you tried to run it in release mode because it would it would break. Um, it also meant that it slows it down a bit as well. Not much. This is unit test code, so generally doesn't have that much execution. And it was also fragile because whenever the .NET team changed something about how that stack is written in terms of async or iAsync enumerable, all of that kind of stuff, it, it, it often broke that stack trace walking. So with Verify, I've taken that knowledge and gone a different approach and have an explicit package for each test framework that plugs into the test framework API to work out that information. So it means I don't have any stack trace walking here to work out what the current method is. It was nice having coming from approval tests. It was nice to not have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> yeah, it, every time I got a bug where someone said, "Oh, I updated to a new version of X of you know .NET," and suddenly everything has stopped working, you're kind of like, "Oh," because the code for stack trace walking was horribly complex. <laughs> so yes, this is a better way of doing it. Oh, I should also say there's also naming conventions. So currently you'll notice the verified files nest automatically under the test class. So you can see here each test has them nested under. That's using an MS build feature. Some people prefer their snapshot files to be in a specific folder at either the project level or at the parent level. There's a convention where you can plug in globally and take full control over how those, how and where those files are written to. So you can have all your snapshot files in one location if you want to. Personally, I prefer them co-located with the test, but again, it's a personal preference. I think I'm I pretty, see. sorry, go for it. I was saying I can see the file structure getting really big if you're storing all your snapshots alongside your tests and you have a large number of tests for a um, set of specific objects and you don't have an IDE that nests, things like that. So the, the IDE, well, that's, <laughs> let me rephrase that. IDEs that don't nest, I'm not sure which ones. I, I'm not sure about VS Code, but in theory, VS Code should respect the MS build syntax for nesting. I haven't tested that, but it is supported in Visual Studio and Rider. One of the problems I've, I have with snapshot testing is you, there's a certain level of obscurity between when you're looking at a test versus the actual verified. So you're, you're right, when you have a lot of um, snapshots under a given file, like if I had 50 tests inside this one test class and I had the associated verified files in here, it can be a bit difficult to quickly find the one for this test. So in this case, I can just go, oh, you know, if there's only two there, I can quickly open them. But if there's a hundred there, it's a bit more difficult. So what I'm hoping to do is add an extension for um, a couple of the more common IDEs. So you can hover over verify and it will show you in context those snapshot files, 
either rendering them in there or giving you the option to open them explicitly. So that that's a future plan. So yeah, that that's one of the drawbacks of snapshot testing that I haven't resolved yet. As long as you can lump all the files into the one folder though, and just have them sit there out of sight, out of mind until diff compare fails. Yes, well that's that's generally what happens. You, usually you don't care until it fails, and then it pops it up in your face to see what it is. The other good thing about snapshot testing is that if you have complex asserts, you might need to run this three or four times, fixing each of the asserts as you go down for one refactor. Where with a snapshot test, you get all of those in one visualization. You know that you know X number of properties have changed. Do you accept or decline those changes? So under the covers of Verify, it's using Newtonsoft. So when when it's serializing to JSON, it's just using Newtonsoft under the covers to do visualization. So any converters or any serialization settings that you can you want to use through Newtonsoft, you can use through this. The reason it's not using SystemTextJSON yet is that SystemTextJSON currently isn't configurable enough to do a lot of the things that I want to do. It just doesn't have the control over the API yet. And that's because it was written as a primarily performance first. And a lot of those edge cases just aren't supported in that yet. I've tried a few times, it's just not there yet. That's probably worth mentioning that the ability to configure Verify is quite useful. I know sometimes I've, when I've used it, I've had a um, an object, but basically it has been JSON text. Uh, so rather than uh, letting Verify sort of serialize an object into JSON, I've already got the JSON there, so you can tell it to to work with that instead. Um, but also there might be parts of it you want to ignore or yeah, which is, it's nice to have that flexibility. If, if you are passing in, uh, this is, you'll notice this is kind of a magic method. Has anyone, imagine people have wondered what the heck that is, because there's no, you know, there's no class that's setting off, there's no instance, there's no base class up here. So this is, um, uh, what's the term? It's basically included the static type into all the test classes. So it's a new, new C-sharp feature. If you're using an older version, you, this is the equivalent of, uh, oh, writer's too smart for me. So it's the equivalent of that. But writer's automatically said qualifier is redundant because it's been automatically included by the NuGet package. But this static verify class has a, several other things in here. So you can pass in a file, which gives you overloads for types and streams. Um, also, JSON is such a common scenario that you can pass in an arbitrary text blob of JSON or a stream of JSON. Um, it also has uh, explicit tuple support as well. Also, you, um, do you, is there any extra special built-in support for things like exceptions for expected exception cases or just matching normally is fine? Yep. So we have is sorry, I'll bring up my verifier again so I have all the different. You have uh, throws, which is pay, accepts a function or an action, and that works the same as assert.throws. So assert.throws gives you back a instance of the exception. Verify throws will actually serialize the instance of that exception to a snapshot file. Uh, there's an overload with a throws task, and the reason for that is 
to the nuance around async tasks and how they throw. So if you if you want to verify that a, a method throws and that method is async, you've got to use throws task. If it's not sync, if it's synchronous, not async, then you can just use throws. Right, so I could do okay, passing in that async. No, it's not. Right, so that would be the equivalent to assert that that throws. Obviously, this will fail because that doesn't throw, but yeah. you, know, you get the idea. Yeah, and I'm assuming that the serialization will ignore anything like timestamps and. Yeah, so it, it, it puts the instance of the exception through the same scrubbing pipeline as everything else. So date times, GUIDs, all that stuff gets scrubbed and replaced with tokenized. You can, you know, ignore specific members, et cetera, et cetera. I should, I should also say all of those scrubbings, uh, I've applied what I think are sensible defaults. You can turn any of them off. So if you don't want to scrub date times or you don't want to scrub uh, um, GUIDs, you can turn that off and you can turn... You can turn it off at any level. So the settings in Verify are three levels. There's globally static, so that affects all tests. You can create an instance of a settings class, which is what this one's doing here, and use this instance for a subset of tests. You just pass in that instance. So here, right? So you can share settings amongst any arbitrary number of tests. And there's also at the level of per method. So if I wanted to do this at the method level, I can just chain this off here, right? And now that's redundant up there. And you could actually then do that to say you want to normally ignore date times, but you have a person that has a date of birth and that it's a date time to unignore that yep, for yep. a serialization test. Yeah, so you could say, you know, don't scrub GUIDs globally, except in these cases. Yeah. Nice. This is some interesting. I'm going way over time. How, how long are we meant to be going for? I think we're 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 about sort of sort of wrapping up time about now. Okay, I'll show you one more little thing. So under the covers, verify returns. It doesn't return a task. It returns a settings task, which is something that you shouldn't even need to worry about. But the cool thing about that is this under the covers, it's it takes in all this information, modifies the serialization, changes any of the settings, and it's not until the actual point in time where the, that settings task gets cast to a normal task that all that stuff applies. So it means that because it's async, I can leverage a side effect of implicit conversion in C-sharp to do a fluent API directly off a task. Does that make sense? That's that's pretty clever. Because if this, what if it looks at when you incorporate this with Fluent API? Sorry, can you ask that question again? What does the code looks at when you have this along with Fluent API together? Well, this is a Fluent API, so you can chain any number of things together in here. So oh. you know, I can, you know, ignore the stack trace if it was an exception. I can, you know. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, Fluent assertions. Not associating um, framework. Oh. Right. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of if you have existing assertion frameworks, I often find a combination of using traditional asserts together with uh, Verify 
works best. In this case, you could have, if I just move it off way back. So that could, this is a um, X unit assert. So this could be a fluent assertion down here. You can either have the asserts before or after the snapshot test. That's your call. It, the first one that fails, you're not going to know about the second one. So if I put this up here and if this fails, the snapshot test isn't going to pop up because all these assertion libraries work on the assumption that when something fails, it throws an exception. There's a few Fluent APIs where you can do multiple assertions, but they're not very common. But you could throw, you could use Fluent assertions in here or anything else as well. There's also support for um, mocking libraries. So if you want to do, say you mock something up and then in your asserts you say, I want to assert that against this mock these methods were executed, you can just pass in the instance of that mock directly into verify and it will serialize those those calls that were made to that mock. So in this case, we're mocking up a new target. So here's our interface. We're doing a setup against that. We're executing something against that mock and then we're verifying the mock. And then that will serialize all the calls against it. So if, if it wasn't for this, I'd have to say that you know, assert that mock received one call to method with arguments equal one and two, and the response was this. Because if you look at, you know, have a look at how mock looks like. So this is, that's for syntax. So that, that there where it's saying, you know, verify that this library, library received a download exist with that call at most once. So if you're using Verify for snapshot testing, you just pass that mock directly into Verify and it will serialize that to a snapshot. And that snapshot looks like this. It also means that you capture side effects easier because this asserts one thing, but if you had different calls to different things that you didn't expect, you would also have to assert all of those as well. Where if you're doing snapshot testing, you get all of the calls that were made against that mock. Cool. Great stuff. Um, we're probably getting up to time. I realised at the start I forgot to ask some questions. So I'm just going to quickly, before we wrap up, and hit this button. And if it works, we should have some little questions there. Uh, so I'll give you uh, a few seconds to, to fill that out. You can hit more than one on that one. I should also say while, while that's going on, um, all of this is MIT. Uh, it's all open source. Some of the libraries that I'm extending are commercial. So Aspose, I've got explicit support for Aspose because my my current employee uses Aspose for rendering uh, documents. So my extension to Aspose is under MIT and three, but if you want to use Aspose, you need a license. Uh, that's that's true for a few of those, but most of the most of the stack for each of the different plugins is is free under MIT. That's interesting. The spread of test framework usage. Okay, next one. You can see I had fun creating these last. This one I should have asked at the start. I threw just just in there because uh, it does have a snapshot feature. I don't think it's as advanced as as verifying. Yeah, there is a few other. 
snapshot testing libraries that I've seen that have taken a kind of a command line approach where you're doing running your test interactively. So you run your tests, the first one that fails, it tells you it's failed, you push some, type something in the console to open that or close or accept it or decline. Uh, personally, I didn't like that approach, um, which is why I went with, you know, of the whole popping up of diffs and multiple execution. I think it maps better to how tests are executed inside IDEs in .NET. Okay. I did have one on .NET Framework Usage, but I don't think we'll worry about that one. But one on one. Uh, very cool. So if anyone yeah. has any yeah, any more questions, feel free to reach out. I'm Simon Crop on Twitter. Um, you can raise issues on the GitHub repos. If anyone wants to extend Verify to support different libraries or toolkits, let me know. Um, yeah, I'd like to have explicit support for Postgres, but because I'm not actually using Postgres, it's just not hit the top of my queue. But yeah, there's a there's a lot of different scenarios where value could be added for specific technologies. So yeah, let us know. And yeah, just to echo Simon's earlier comment that it's actually pretty easy to build one of those add-ins because even I managed to do it. So uh, um, yeah, especially if you can, if you're basing it off of something that sort of already exists and just need to adapt it a bit. It's, yeah, it's quite a, a powerful ecosystem. Um, well, with that, um, thank you, Simon, for, for giving up your evening to, to spend with us. And uh, I've got a lot of it and I've used Verify, but I've got some some ideas now how I can use it better and, and some things I need to, to dig into. Um, I hope other people uh, found it useful as well and uh, look forward to catching you all again next month. But uh, thank you, Simon, and uh, good evening, everyone.